You are listening to the Gable Media Continuing Education Podcast Feed, the most entertaining and convenient way for AEC professionals to get continuing education credits, including AIA-approved courses. As a Gable member, just listen and follow the link in the show notes to take a brief quiz and obtain your credit today. Enjoy. I think what's interesting is if you talk to people from various architectural backgrounds and different regions, you'll see that people value the architecture that belonged to their ancestors. Welcome to Tangible Remnants. I'm Nikita Reed, and this is my show where I explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. I'm excited that you're here. So let's get into it. Welcome back. This episode is another fun one, and I really enjoyed getting to know fellow UVA alum, Dr. Kendall Nicholson, better through our conversation. We cover race and architecture, storytelling and empathy. We touch on how to tap into your network to travel to another country, lessons he's learned so far being a father, and how adopting kids through the foster care system has helped him flex his empathy muscles. This is an expansive conversation where we really get into how everything is connected and how his experiences in one aspect of his life have informed all others. And so let me keep building a little excitement for you and get into his bio. Dr. Kendall Nicholson is a licensed educator, trained architectural designer, and an avid researcher. He works as the Director of Research and Information at the Association of Collegiate Schools of Architecture, ACSA, and is currently furthering his research at Harvard's Graduate School of Design, with work focused on the confluence of race, architecture, and education. He has presented research internationally, and his research interests surround equity, education, and curriculum within the discipline of architecture. Nationally, his passion for equity and racial justice manifests in his role as the research consultant for the 2016 and 2018 Equity in Architecture Survey, sponsored by the AIA San Francisco and Equity by Design, EQXD. He also volunteers as a member of the AIA's Equity in the Future of Architecture board, and he's on the newly formed NOMA Research Committee. So, as you can see, he is doing the work, and knowing that he is working on architecture education curriculum gives me so much hope for the future of this profession. So the building spotlight this week is the Philadelphia Museum of Art, which was designed by Julian Abel while he worked in Horace Trombauer's office in Philadelphia. And Abel was the first African-American student to graduate from the University of Pennsylvania's School of Design in 1902. I first learned about him when I was a student at Penn, and I was fascinated to learn about his legacy. In addition to being credited as one of the designers of the Philadelphia Museum of Art, Abel's body of work also includes numerous mansions in New York, including notably the Manhattan home of the American Tobacco Company founder, James Buchanan Duke. At the time, that home was considered to be the costliest home on Fifth Avenue, uh, which is now New York University's Institute of Fine Arts. And so it was that commission that led Abel to being able to create a legacy at the campus of Duke University. From the university's iconic Duke Chapel to Cameron Indoor Stadium, where the Duke Blue Devil basketball team plays, Abel designed the bulk of Duke's West Campus between 1924 and 1950. And what's wild to me is that because of Jim Crow laws and just general racism, Abel was not welcomed to walk any of the buildings he designed on Duke's campus. 
So head over to the Tangible Remnants Instagram page to see photos of this week's building spotlight, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and check out the show notes for this episode to see more about Julian Abel's legacy. And also, one more thing before we get into the conversation. If you're enjoying the show, I would love for you to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're not enjoying the show, don't worry about it. All right, well, I am excited for you to experience this episode. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation between me and Dr. Kendall Nicholson. I would love for us to just start with your architecture journey and what got you to architecture? Yeah, that's a great question. So like many, I decided I wanted to be an architect back in seventh grade. And, you know, it's really interesting. I specifically remember being in seventh grade and I guess having a conversation about careers and in the classes that I was in, the idea was that like everybody needed something different. And so we had already decided that I was the school future architect, right? And I grew up in a military town. So in seventh grade, another young, black, intelligent young man came to our school and he was like, I want to be an architect. And I was like, oh, there can only, <laughs> there can only be one. There can only be one and it's going to be me because I've been here longer. Which is really interesting because a lot of what we think about the world as children informs mm -hmm. our older selves, you know, sure. and you don't actually put it together. Now I'm obviously much wiser, much smarter and know like there's space for all of us, right? And I actually want there to be more of us. Right. <laughs> but anyway, so I decided that a long time ago and it really actually came through seeing my parents become homeowners. Hmm. So we moved when I was younger, maybe in third grade or so. We moved from an apartment in one part of town to my parents bought a house. And that house was $100,000. And it was like, we were like one of the first, and my, my mom is one of eight. So we were one of the first of the eight to actually have a house that we owned. And it was this big thing. And it was a new development. So I saw houses going up all the time um, and thought, oh, this is cool. And I'm good at, I'm good at math and I can draw a little bit. And so I put some of these things together. But as far as my longer journey, it's been a bit circuitous. <laughs> I went to... UVA undergrad for architecture and took professional practice as a pre-professional student, which was really insightful for me because it told me a little bit about how the profession worked and who the players were, who the stakeholders were. And so I decided I need to, if I'm going to do this, I need to be both the developer and the architect. So that's how I ended up at Georgetown studying real estate development. I graduated from UVA and went to Georgetown and enjoyed that, worked in real estate for a little bit, and then thought, wait a minute, I got to get back into architecture because we know architecture is like the real thing, right? If you don't have architecture, <laughs> then you don't have anything. Else. No, uh, that has to be center stage. Reached back out to UVA's central office. That's not really the right word, but I reached reach back out to the university and I knew I wanted to travel. Like I had, had never been out of the country at that point in time. And so asked if we had any alums in France. And they said, yeah, here's a short list. They maybe gave me a list of 10 or 15. I didn't realize that was a thing you could do. Just ask. Well, I, it just was wow. one of those things like, how am I, if I want to go somewhere, but I need someone to yeah. kind of, you know, so I did that and I cold called them, which is like kind of funny because people <laughs> don't do that anymore. But I, I called them and I called them one by one and said like, hey, you know, I'm trying to come, you know, I see you're an alum and can you host me for maybe a summer or a year or something like that? Bold. Kindle. That is so bold. I love it. <laughs> I got a bite. Actually, I might, I might have gotten one or two, but there was one person 
Jacqueline Delano that that was willing to bring me on. And I moved to Paris for a little under a year and worked for an architect there. And that's where I decided I did not actually want to be a licensed architect. <laughs> we can go in, <laughs> we can go into, you know, at some point, but it helped me realize where my gifts lied. Yeah. And where my innate gifts were. And I think I could have, if I had actually done more practice in the States, could have been a whole completely different trajectory. So I came back to the States and decided my gifts are working with people. I love education. If I could be in school, I'm in school right now, right? But if I could be in school forever, I would. Like I would just, if they would just pay me to learn everything, Mm -hmm. I would do that. So I started teaching K through 12 architecture. I taught some summer enrichment at a community college for grades three through five. And then I taught grade six through 12 architecture and did that for six years or so. And while I was doing that, got my doctorate in education from Regent, which is in Virginia Beach, um, a small, private, super conservative, but they have really great <laughs> pedagogy. So don't align with, with the school's political stance, but right. um, they create great teachers. That's mm-hmm. one of the things they do for the state of Virginia. And so I got my doctorate in education there, researching architectural values. And then long story short, this is the short version, believe it or not, you know, ended up at the Association for Collegiate Schools of Architecture, ACSA as the Director of Research and Information. My mind is very much blown right now (laughs) because I knew some of this, but not all of it, particularly not the talking to UVA alums to move to France for a year to work another firm that's amazing so were you working like do you know french or did they speak english what was the language barrier like or was it oui, je parle un petit peu de français like i speak a little bit of french um, okay but i think that in the grand scheme of things i'll tell you i mean i like i said at that time had never been to to france mm-hmm. and i got there and i was alone which somehow i still felt pretty safe but i was i was there by myself and i knew a little bit okay but i think one of the dis- discrepancies for me, it would have been a little bit better to have been guided because I was there. And for the first, I'd say three weeks, I kept looking around, like, why are there no African-American people? Like I was looking around, like, where are the African-American people? Like, were there like black French people, just not African-Americans? But that's what I'm saying. It took me three weeks to realize I'm not in America. Why am I expecting to see African-American people? Right, exactly. So there was a little bit of like, not necessarily a place where I felt like I fit, but okay. it was a great learning opportunity. It it propelled my French language skills, which I, I don't necessarily have anymore, but it was just a great experience to actually consider what it meant to be global. Like we yeah. talk about globalism, but yeah. That's super yeah. fascinating. And so then when you started teaching architecture K through 12 and getting into like the collegiate teaching, what are some of the architectural skills or topics that get covered with kids that aren't in college? Yeah, it's really interesting for the youngest children. I usually just focus on what it means to create space, like that we are in space all, all the time, usually grounded by our feet. But what does it mean to create space? What does it mean to imagine new spaces like and you know they they make houses usually that are like pink and green and that's okay because we're creating space you know and you know it's interesting it wasn't until you asked that question that I'm recognizing how my research presently around authorship and the experience of people on the street Mm -hmm. understanding architecture is actually quite related to that right like yeah 
so for for the younger kids is that for the older uh, students like grade six through 12 it's thinking about architecture as a technology something that we, we continue to create thinking about what informs the spaces we create and what are the societal conditions for high schoolers like i can take them through an exercise that talks about what we learn from trees monuments which can be like really abstract but I can also like we would do proposals in the school parking lot. So I have them out there measuring the school parking lot and bringing it back and, and trying to guesstimate the topography. Right. You know, I also taught engineering just as a technical education teacher. And I used to joke that my architecture students got a really good architecture teacher. My engineering students maybe didn't get the best, get the best <laughs> one. So right. Know. That's fascinating. And so then you said your current research, you're studying how, I guess, people on the street are interacting with architecture, perceiving it. Say more about that. Yeah, I came back to Harvard DSD, Graduate School of Design, to explore the intersection of race, architecture, and education. And I feel like personally and professionally, we are doing the discipline a grave disservice by not educating students and this is like all students, right? Um, it's not just Black students that exactly. need to know Exactly, everybody about. needs to know. <laughs> yeah, yes. like, but not educating students about how history and systemic barriers inform the, the spaces we create. Absolutely. And so I'm currently in the process of trying to develop a new theory that is about a sociopolitical process around how we create space. Like, instead of actually being hyper-focused on the product and form and formalism, what if we were hyper-focused on people? What if we didn't look at models from a sky view? I mean, we're so focused on the exterior. What if we thought about really what it meant to be in the middle of the space, ascending the, the fire stair? Like, what does right. that mean for somebody, right? Right. Yeah, um, that definitely changes the perspective and the feeling of it. Because you're right, architects do typically tend to think about what does it look like on the exterior. And yeah, there's the interior spaces and the flow and all that. But for the most part, the, the renderings, the sexiness, the images and the money shot, all that is the exterior far away, how it fits into the context. And so there right. is that, how does it fit into the existing context? But that's a very different question than how does it feel to be moving through that space? Right. And so one of the things, you know, growing up in Virginia and almost any part of the, the state, you're surrounded or in some way in relationship to the plantations that are, you know, might be 10 miles, might be 60 miles, but the plantations that are there. And so it was kind of born out of that. Like I started to look at plantations, the way that they are structured around power and wealth and, and actually situate Black people in that space. Like they belong in that space. They just belong in a specific part of that space. And so I took that and paired it down to, if you look at, you know, what history is, I think, equally as important, if not more important to you than it is to me. But if you look at the forms and shapes and ornaments of housing in the 1920s through the 40s, especially brick houses, they're very much so many plantations. Like they, they very much so appropriate the slate roofs and they appropriate other pieces. And so in a city like Petersburg, Virginia, which is, you know, where we used to live, we still live in central Virginia. In a city like Petersburg, which is predominantly a Black city, you still have a white section of the city that is the beautiful tree-lined street boulevard lined with these many plantations. 
mm-hmm. where people are honestly surveilling people from inside. So what does it mean right. to actually be in your city, which is a black city, and walk in the street and knowing that people are looking at you? Like that dynamic is just right. Yeah, that yeah. constant surveillance is yeah, that's interesting. The things that I always found fascinating, particularly when I was studying covenants for a National Register multiple property document that I was working on with a colleague. For that document, I got to be a little bit of a jock and just be like, oh, I get to talk about the buildings. Whereas she was focusing more so on like the narrative and all the research and all things. Anyways, I always found it surprising because the covenants, it wasn't that like Black people weren't allowed to be in a space. They weren't allowed to own a space or be in a position of power. Like they were expected to be there in a subservient space, expecting to be the cooks, the nannies, the caregivers, but they weren't expected or allowed to be equal or ownership or anything like that. And so I always found that fascinating that the mental gymnastics of systemic racism and the systems that we currently have would be such that, no, you you can be here, just not in a certain way. It's exactly representative of that plantation dynamic, right? Right. The house, the first house that I ever purchased was in Petersburg. Mm -hmm. And it was a house that in its deed, one of the covenants was that no one with, I think the covenant actually said one fifth of African ancestry or blood could own that property. Um, And the house was built in 1927. And so I took myself as the owner as like, ha ha, look at this. Exactly. (laughs) Like, you know, like. (laughs) But it's definitely something that's born out of history. And so that's what a lot of the work that I do across the country, giving lectures and doing, you know, talking and trying to write about architectural education is acknowledging that there's a history there that we can't actually start at the time that you enter the site, right? Right. Like we got to go way back. And I think it's a challenge for faculty for a number of reasons. I think one is faculty are more likely to teach the way they were taught. That's the skills that they got, whether they went to what is considered an elite school or they went to a really technical school or they went to an avant-garde school. That's the training they got. And so they're able to to push that training onto their pupils, so to speak. But oftentimes it's filled with architectural theory and history, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily the history of people and peoples that are potentially Black, Indigenous, Latine, you know, right. Asian uh, or Pacific right. Yeah. And it's one of those things where even, even at UVA and a lot of the other, most of my architecture education, I learned nothing about any of the architects of any color, really. And it was almost kind of like, oh, they didn't exist. And it's like, they existed. They were doing great work. It's just, they weren't canon because the people who were deciding what was canon and what was important didn't value the contributions of Paul Reveal Williams or Norma Sklarik or any of the other like trailblazers on just the black side. And I know there's a number yeah. of Asian American, Native American, there's a number of people of color who've been doing amazing things in the field of architecture globally that we just didn't learn about because it wasn't considered canon. Granted, our UVA education was very European centric and, you know, all that. But still, yeah. I, like there are massive cities in Asia, China, India, that were created by amazing, talented people of color that just I don't know about. I'm I'm right there with you. I think what's interesting is if you talk to people from various architectural backgrounds and different regions, you'll see that people value the architecture that belonged to their ancestors. I did a, a series in 2020 and 2021 
called Where Are My People, where it went through the five major racial groups. And people value, like, as a Black American, I value the work of Julian Abel, right? And yeah. I value the work of others that were here and persevering well before my time. And when I talked to the group of Hispanic or Latinx architects, they valued the work of rich cultures and like the Mayan civilizations, right? Like, and so we saw that pop up every time really is that people look at their own history mm-hmm. because we, I think, have a different understanding of collective. What yeah. That means. Yeah. That makes sense. I recently got fascinated when my colleagues turned me on to this book called The Four Cities or something along the lines of basically it's like exploring four lost culture, the planning, the amazing design, the amazing lives that were lived and like really the palimpsest of history that's existed as people just kept living and things kept changing technology changed they left they're just the world is so much bigger and time is so much longer than what we were taught in architecture school and so learning more about prehistoric civilizations and even Catalhuyuk in Turkey and just all the different places my mind was blown (laughs) and so just knowing that the world and design and life and space creation is so much bigger than the European-centric architecture that we learned at UVA is something that I'm still learning and it's I'm still fascinated by. Yeah, I remember, you know, and I'm not a major history buff. I think I'm actually learning much more history these days. But I remember when Amber Wiley got, you know, one of the first traveling fellowships at the SAH um, and was able to spend a year yeah. just travel and I was like this is amazing you know because yeah. she got firsthand experience of of architecture that that just wasn't centered at the University of Virginia exactly and I had her on the podcast as one on one of the early episodes and she was talking about her time in Vietnam and how she there was like a museum in Vietnam about the war and they're like she's like walking in and seeing photos of African-American soldiers on the walls in Vietnam about the war and kind of that how that changed her a little bit. And it was like, this is fascinating. What are some of the things that you hope for the future of architecture education? I really hope that we can, it's interesting. I really hope that we can be on one accord that we have to fit in the understanding of social conditions. You know, my area of expertise is specifically race. And I think that's really important if you're studying architecture here in the United States, Mm -hmm. because even, you know, growing up in the South, I was always under the impression that the the most horrific and heinous and most racially charged things happened in the American South, Mm -hmm. which I, I still think is true. But, you know, Newport, Rhode Island was one of those largest slave ports. And so I don't know that it matters so much where you practice or where you grew up or where you live or where you study, but really understanding that the context there. And I think personally, this is my own opinion. I think it's okay for schools to have different foci, right? Like, so if I'm studying in South Dakota, then I would expect to have more of an understanding of history from a native or indigenous understanding. Absolutely. Maybe than the black understanding. And that will shift, you know, if I'm studying in, in El Paso, Texas, then I would expect to have more of an understanding of Mexico in relation to the United mm-hmm. States. Mm-hmm. I know we have to, we have to prioritize people before products and before place. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm optimistic that we'll be able to have more of these conversations where it is 
just stating what is. I'm thinking more so of some of my white colleagues that I'm working with or some of my white friends because I'm typically the the black person. How do I say this? I have a lot of friends of a lot of different races. And I'm typically <laughs> yeah. the person who's very fine talking about race and acknowledging what is in a way that doesn't make someone feel guilty or shame or anything like that. Because I don't think that either guilt or shame are productive emotions. So I'd much rather have a conversation about this is why things are the way they are. This is how we got here. Because if we don't understand that, then we can't figure out how we're going to move forward and creating something that's more equitable and just for everyone. And so I really love that idea of different regions actually speaking their truth for what happened, for how they got to where they are. Even the idea of Americans in Texas trying to ignore the history between the United States and Mexico and how Texas came to be, or California came to be for that matter, seems asinine to me. Like it seems very schizophrenic. If we could just be honest yeah. about where we are, we would be able to get so much further. Well, I think there are two reasons why talking about race is difficult. Most of the time, my lectures are about race and architecture. But I think one reason that it's difficult for people is because a lot of people feel as if, if you say something negative about the country's history, then you can't still love it, right? Like, how can you acknowledge that there were these immense physical, mental, and emotional harms that were attributed to specifically Black and Indigenous populations, and then still say, like, I love it. But what a lot of people don't understand, which I think projects like the 1619 Project do really well, mm -hmm. is this understanding that we were born on the water, right? Like that as African-American people, at least, that our ties to Africa are distant because that was stripped. So mm -hmm. we actually, in many ways, we don't have any other choices but the love of America because right. these are the cities we built. Like this is the craftsmanship of our ancestors, right? Even when we walk onto a plantation. The other thing that I think makes it hard, or maybe not so much makes it hard, but is really ironic, is that there's this call not to talk about race, right? Like it makes people uncomfortable. But if you look at our history, America's history in particular, that's all people did is talk always, about race. Always. Like everything was about race. I mean, who has land, who can have land, what land they were going to take next. It was all about race. So how do we go from everything being about race in the 18th and 19th century to now, I don't know, we right. do not talk about race. I think it's uh, puzzling to say the least. Yeah, agreed. And like, there's this, for me, because I'm also from Virginia and even, so growing up in a Southern area and I do, even though it's Northern Virginia, I still consider it South, <laughs> but it was very much this idea of it's impolite to talk about race, particularly in mixed company. And so that's something that I've always found puzzling, particularly as someone who's always been more comfortable in mixed settings. I've often, I've always been, I don't know what's the word, me, I don't know, <laughs> but even at UVA, yeah, like uh, the, it was culture shock for me because my high school was very diverse. I had friends from all different nationalities. I didn't think that Black people were still treated differently coming out of my high school. And then I got to UVA and I was like, oh, this is still a thing. Black Nikki, people are definitely still treated differently. Oh, wow. But it's like, I got there and I was too Black for the white folks and too white for the Black folks because of the way I spoke. I had friends, Black friends who I'm very close to now telling me, oh, you're really cultured. You know, so it's like, as, <laughs> as a way of yeah. trying to say, why do you talk like that? So it was just, it was a culture shock and very fascinating. So anyways, like the, the politeness and I'm like, I want to talk to my friends about things that I care about 
And race is one of those things because it affects everything that I do in my life. Let me tell you, I was um, woefully naive. I got to the university um, and I think you had just graduated and I was getting there, but I got to the university and at uh, summer orientation, which they do all the architecture students together, I met two people, two very nice, wonderful white people, Grace and Jasper. And I, and we said, we should get our parents together for the next day. Mm -hmm. So our parents got together and they had coffee and we just kind of, you know, chatted and so excited. And so we get in the car and my mother says to me, she said, Hey, Kendall, I really enjoyed Grace and Jasper, but did you meet any black people there? Cause you know, she knew what I needed right. before I knew that I needed right. it fully. And I said, I did meet some, but I just say hello to everybody. Like I just talked to everybody. So mm-hmm. Grace and Jasper are the ones that I, you know, she's like, okay, well just make sure before, because that's going to be important. I'm like, well, we're past that, you know, like mm-hmm. young and naive, which still happens today, even though I think the generation, you know, the Gen Zers are, have more access to, to mm-hmm. differences and disparities. I think that still happens today. And so I very much so got the same thing. I remember being in a, I'll tell one more short story. I remember being in studio. I think in that specific studio, I was the only Black individual, only Black person. And I got a call from my grandma. And so I took the phone call. And when I got on my grandma, I said, hey, Grant, how you doing? And she, we were just talking, shooting the breeze and, and talking just in a very colloquial way because that's how I talked to my grandma. Mm-hmm. And... I stopped. I hung up the phone and everybody was looking at me. Like, and I was like, what? Why is everyone staring? And uh, a good friend of mine, a white woman, a good friend of mine that was right beside me, she was like, we didn't know you could talk like that. Like, we didn't know. Oh, wow. Like, they they were listening, but didn't realize, like, that my my Black, yeah, like, they they weren't fully understanding the code switch. And so they were like, wow, okay, you're really, like, talking like a black person <laughs> to a black grandma yes i am right i do exactly. this for you all like, right. <laughs> exactly <laughs> wow yeah back to that idea of like how can you love something when there were problems with it or it was problematic or things like that and i feel like that's just something that particularly as black americans that's we've always done that i feel like i've always accepted the country for what it is and my place in it but recognizing that it could be better and also realizing right. that it, it doesn't have to be this hard, especially after it's like having friends of different races, of different income levels, of different socioeconomics and recognizing, oh, well, that's how they're able to move through the space. So if they're able to move from the space that way, why can't others? And like, it doesn't have to be this hard. These are arbitrary, dumb, artificial things that are trying to keep different people separate. I often think about the fact of how much further we along we would be as a society particularly in the U.S., if there weren't are these arbitrary rules on who's allowed to do what, who's allowed to have access to funds and education and space and like how much farther along we would be if there just was less inequality. And I just feel like there's so many decision makers in the past who have just shot us in the foot or shot themselves in the foot where we could be so much further along if they just weren't racist and were making better decisions. Right. I 100% agree. One of the things I often think about specifically when I think about race dynamics or racism in the 18th and 19th century is I think about the potential loss. Like I think about someone, let's say a black woman working the cotton fields or the tobacco fields in Virginia who actually had gifts to be an opera singer. Like 
but never actually got to realize any of that because of the systems that we had in place. And so, well, I know it's a, it's an extraordinary shame. I mean, it's really disgraceful. Yeah, yeah, agreed. <laughs> um, but agreed. I think I do think keeping the honesty is important. And I think, you know, if we look at the state of Virginia, for instance, and the major pushback to critical race theory, it's one of those things that is so contrived mm-hmm. that it's not even really, I don't know, I'm going to stop there because I because that'll take us down the rabbit hole. But I feel you because the same way that the whole contrived thing of critical race theory being a problem when it's really a non-issue for the majority of the population particularly if they're not in law school. It's also just, I feel that same way when people talk about cancel culture or being politically correct. Because it's like, well, why wouldn't you say things in a way that's not going to purposely offend or disenfranchise people? And it's, I feel like the comments that people want to make, oh, but they can't because it's so political correct and they're worried about getting canceled. They're trash comments anyway. <laughs> it's just yeah. now they're being held accountable for it. And so I feel like there's a big difference between being held accountable or there being consequences for what you say versus people being too sensitive or those kinds of things. And so I feel like the line between, oh, people being against critical race theory and people thinking things are too politically correct or cancel culture is a problem. For me, it's, it's the same picture. <laughs> it's, two right, sides of the right. same, it's the same thing. It's all noise and distraction uh, when we could actually be having honest conversations about why things are the way they are. Right. No, I 100% agree. Yeah. We're getting to the end here. And so I would love for you, if you're willing, to talk a little bit about compassion and parenting and adoption and all the good things of the things that make you happy on your personal side. Yeah, no. Thank you for asking. I think one thing that is missing And I'm going to say across the discipline of architecture, that might not be 100% true, but I think one thing that's missing maybe across our current society is empathy. And empathy is a skill. Like it's not something something that you have to work on. My wife tells me all the time that I need to be more empathetic. It's not because I'm not trying, but it's it's a muscle that you Mm -hmm. have to actually work to understand. Like I'm hearing you voice a frustration. I'm hearing you are hurt or I'm hearing that you're upset or sad Mm -hmm. that you experience something even and instead of actually giving you a solution which is typically my thing it's like pausing long enough to say you know what I understand that like I'm sorry that happened to you yes you know like acknowledging the human (laughs) the emotion of that absolutely absolutely Um, I would say that we as, as our family, we do a lot of things and we try to do things in love, compassion, and grace. And I think grace is a big part. Like, I think people kind of oftentimes understand love, but I think the grace piece is, is one that requires a shift in thought because it says essentially that I don't actually need you to be perfect. I don't actually need you to be fulfilling me 100% of the time that you're, it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay. And I'm going to accept you for who you are. And so I say all that to say, I think the way in which we've built our family, for those who don't know, I have, I'm married and I have a, a wonderful, amazing, phenomenal wife who is like, if somebody wants to know my secret sauce, it is my wife. <laughs> <laughs> it is my wife. She's just the most supportive and empathetic. She's, she's got me beat in that d- dynamic. Who is white? And actually came from a really wealthy background. And so we have a lot of conversations. We have constant conversations in our household 
about race and socioeconomics and society at large. But we also have two kids that came to us through foster care that we adopted. And they require so much of us because we didn't have them from birth. And I, I think that has been one of the most humbling things. And it makes parenting a challenge a lot of the times because I'll never right. forget our daughter came to us when she was 10 years old. Okay. And when children are in foster care, there are a lot of boxes to check to make sure that you're giving your children or the children at the time the best care and that you are getting their eyes checked and you're making sure physicals are done exactly one year after oh, wow. the physical okay. is done. And so I took her to the optometrist. There we go. Yep. I took her to the optometrist and the doctor was asking questions like, okay, and have you ever had glasses before? And I was like, no, she's never had. And she was like, yeah, I did. Used to have glasses in kindergarten. And I'm like, what? Right. Um, <laughs> And so one of the things that I, I think sometimes makes someone a confident parent is like knowing their child. I know my child better than anybody else. And when they come to you through foster care and they come to you with a, a level of brokenness because the experience is so hard, you can't actually rely on like, I know this child better than anybody. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of growth that we see mm-hmm. in our children, the, the two that came through foster care. And I think that's probably the most humbling part to be able to show them something different, to see their minds move and, and trace, and then to hold them when things get hard and are broken. One of the things, and we're very clear, our youngest, when he came to us, he was still one. And we're very clear with him about adoption and coming through foster care. Mm-hmm. But we recognize that sometimes both of our kids who are now five and 14, both of our oldest kids, Sometimes they really just need a hug. Like, and it, it sometimes like comes to me after the fact. I think it comes to my wife a little faster, but I'm like, right. you know what? He actually is just really upset and needs a hug. Yeah. I mean, listen, physical touch is my love language. Sometimes you just need a hug. <laughs> like, yeah. I totally get that. It's not mine. It's not <laughs> mine. So I have to like actually think, oh, you know what? He just needs a hug to calm down. And then we have another little one that is a year and a half, a little bit over a year and a half that my wife birthed naturally. And now we actually have one more on the way. So, Oh my gosh, congrats, but four (laughs) babies. Okay. That's a lot. That's a lot in in the city, I will say. Yes. Um, But yeah, I think we definitely consider it a blessing. And I would say foster care and adoption has been a ministry in and of itself, because like I said, it's definitely not for the faint of heart. It's very difficult. (laughs) It's very difficult, but that's why it's humbling because it requires you to give more than you ever anticipated giving. And I remember, um, because I guess the last time we saw each other and the pre-COVID times, um, I want to say it was like at an AA convention. It was yeah. a while ago. But I remember, I think you were going through that process. And I remember just being in awe of all of the things that I knew you were going to have to go through. Because I have a couple other friends who've adopted and even through foster care and just knowing that it's a process and it's not a quick process and it's not an easy or, yeah. So I was super excited for you. And I'm glad, glad to hear that it worked out and the kids aren't in the system anymore. And that's fantastic. Yeah. No, yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful for that. And we often say, you know, I often think I wish we had our kids from birth, but I also know that wasn't actually supposed to be part of their story. Like they have the story that they're supposed to have. Yeah. But I, I just wish I 
was able to see our oldest in particular. Like, I wish I was able to hold her in my arms and do some of those things that uh, we didn't have the opportunity to, to do. And so I think there's a lot of development and relationship building and understanding. And mm -hmm. like I said, grappling with the hard things because there's loss on either side of, of, sure. of that equation. Yeah, for sure. You talking about empathy and giving people that pause and acknowledging just the emotions that they're feeling is making me think a lot of Brene Brown. And one of the, yes. you know, she's an amazing shame researcher and um, her, her line of the story I'm telling myself is, has been a game changer for me and my husband in our marriage in terms of like, whenever I'm really frustrated or angry because I'm assuming something that isn't necessarily the case being able to just pause and be like, well, listen, the story I'm telling myself is that you did this because of X, Y, and Z and like opens up that conversation. And so being able to pause and give them space to feel whatever they're feeling, have the conversation without the assumptions or the perceived negative feelings is super valuable, I think. Yeah, I think that's great. I love Brene Brown's work because, <laughs> because mm -hmm. she does usually make it like really clear and easy to, yeah. to use. I think one thing I have constantly been going back to is this idea of rest. So I'm in this predicament currently that I feel really grateful for to be at Harvard University, to be at the graduate school design, to have four other healthy members of my family, to have, you know, we could talk about all these other things that, you know, I've been able to do or able to see. And I think in architecture and specifically, there's this culture of production that in many yes. ways mimics this idea of, of labor that we see across history, right? Like mm -hmm. Chinese labor, we can think about Black labor, we can think about Indigenous labor. But I think sometimes for me, it's hard to suss out, I don't know exactly how to say it. It's not necessarily perfectionism. It's more of like this idea that I must be constantly producing to, to have enough to stand on yes. if called into question. Yes, I feel that. You have to be continually productive to prove your worth in case someone tries to call you. Yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. you have to know, I've been thinking a lot about the architectural canon and the ways in which I, if I am a, an aspiring architectural theorist, I actually have to know that European canon mm -hmm. um, just as well, if not better than other people, to be able to substantiate something else. And so I say all that to say a feed I follow on Instagram is called Black Liturgies. And I screen captured this quote back in November, I believe, that says this, I want to read it because this is, I, I constantly go back to it. It says, rest will always feel like a risk to those who don't understand the violence of exhaustion. Rest Ooh. is healing. Stop abandoning yourself. Ooh. And I just feel like I have to, like, if you read that and you can't help but force yourself to rest because you're like, this exhaustion can be violent. Yes. Right? Like, wow. I'm acknowledging that. That if I, in this current time, that I am working 20 hours as the research director, that I'm in school full-time, that I have a wife and three and a half kids <laughs> that need my attention, that like, that there's actually is a lot going on and yeah. it's okay to feel tired. And it's okay to say, you know what, when I first got here last semester, 
I had on average 800 pages of reading each week. Mm. And so it would be okay. You know, there were times where I would call my wife and say, I really wanted to finish all my reading and I'm a hundred pages short, but I really like, I came here because I wanted to grab the content and mm -hmm. she's like, and that's okay. Like, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, is it? Like, <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> and so I think there really is something to this idea that like your rest is equally as important as your ability to learn or your ability to produce or your ability to do all those other things. I love that. This week's episode was produced by Fernando Queiroz. Thank you so much for listening. Links to amazing resources can be found in the episode's show notes. Special thanks to Sarah Gilberg for allowing me to use snippets of her song Fireflies from her debut album, Other People's Secrets, which, by the way, is available wherever music is sold. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the show. And now that Tangible Remnants is part of the Gable Media Network, you can listen and subscribe to all network partner content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Until next time. Remember that historic preservation is a present conversation with our past about our future. We don't inherit the earth from our parents, but we borrow it from our children. So let's make sure we're telling our inclusive history. I saw the first fireflies of summer And right then I thought of you Oh, I could see us catching them and setting them free that's what you do That's what you do to me